For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, church, last week we started a new series of messages entitled Wonderful Words. It's a series that this summer is meant to uh, build up a foundation of your faith, uh, understanding, knowing, um, having the right uh, perspective on key words in the Bible that have, have a multitude and a richness of meaning and implication and applications to our faith. Last week, we started with that word inspiration, the inspiration of scriptures. And we, we saw how there is a place in this universe where you can go for absolute truth. The Bible is the inerrant word of God, meaning it does not err, and that it is the infallible word of God, meaning that it cannot err. Therefore, we can trust it and we can build our lives upon what it says. We started with that word because every other word requires our understanding of inspiration. If you don't accept the inspiration, inerrancy, and fallibility of Scripture, you're certainly going to maybe wonder about the word for this morning, salvation. Because the word salvation is a word that divides all the religions of the world, really into two different camps. You, you have the religions of the world that essentially teach that salvation and the afterlife, whatever the afterlife may look like, whether it's nirvana or enlightenment or not coming back as a slug, whatever it may be, right? That all of that happens through works. It's some type of, of spiritual activity where we do and we earn that next stage. And then you have Christianity, which is very different than what it says about salvation and sin. But what's, what's interesting is that the word salvation doesn't just de- divide the religions of the world. The word salvation actually uh, divides those who claim to be Christians. For example, there is a large segment of the Christian church that their understanding of salvation, like the other religions of the world, uh, implies some level of work and spiritual righteousness that we do to attain it. Some have watered down salvation even within the evangelical church in such a way that they believe that before uh, death in some way, or at least after death in eternity, God ultimately wins, as the book was entitled that Rob Bell wrote several years ago, that God wins. And even though you may reject Christ throughout your life, ultimately, He will save you and rescue you and deliver you from eternal punishment. So he teaches, and and it's becoming more and more accepted that there is some form of universalism involved in salvation and in within Christianity. Uh, then there's those within the church who maybe would never accept universalism, yet they completely miss what the gospel teaches about salvation. Many years ago in a different church, I was visiting someone who was on death's 
door. They didn't have long to live. And as I do oftentimes in those kinds of visits, I, I want to hear their story, if I haven't heard it before, about their relationship with Christ. And I remember when I asked this person, you know, you don't have much time left. I, I, by the way, I don't always have the best gift of comfort at these times, I guess. But I don't candy coat it, right? Because you can't candy coat something like this. It's too important. So you don't have much time left. We don't know if it's going to be hours, weeks, or months. Maybe God pulls off an incredible miracle and gives you a few more years. But ultimately, answer this for me. When you appear before God, if he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And this person thought about it for a while, and they smiled, and then they began to recite to me all the ways that they had lived a good life, and that they were very confident that God would accept them because of how she had lived. She had been in church all of her life, and her understanding of salvation and of the gospel was functionally no different than Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, any of the other world religions that teach salvation by works. So this morning, we're going to turn to a word that is central to the scriptures, salvation, a word that we all have to know and appreciate. So let's begin, first of all, by noting what this passage brings to us, that our sin requires a savior. The reason why the word salvation is important is because we are sinners. Verse three, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior, appeared. Why do we need a savior? Why did God, our savior, need to make an appearance? Because verse three describes all of us. It's the same kind of verse that, you've, that um, reflects our natural state as Romans 3 verse 10 does. A verse that I quote to you often. That there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. There is no one who is good. There is no one who pursues after God. We all seek our own desires and sin. This is the natural state of every man, woman, and child born into this world. We are born thoroughly corrupted by God, incapable of doing anything that is good and righteous and pleasing to him. And so as a result, our God who is holy, 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 the one who is and was and is to come, right? This God, that the angels proclaim as thrice holy, stands in direct opposition and hatred of sin. And we are sinners. And so as a result, that word, a word that, man, it's a heavy word. It's a word that we don't like to associate with God. But because God is holy, when he comes to sin, it provokes wrath and justice. This isn't a, a popular picture of God today. We want God like a cosmic Santa Claus who just gives out presents to all of us, regardless of how bad and how sinful and evil we are. But God is holy. He hates sin. The wages of sin is death. And death here means eternal separation from God. 
In John chapter three, we love verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We avoid verse 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the what? Wrath of God remains on him. Church, our sin needs a savior. It requires a savior. And so this leads us to the central point of this passage. Verses five and six is integral to our understanding of salvation. What I want you to walk away with this morning is this understanding that our salvation is solely due to God's sovereign grace and mercy. Verse five, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right away, one of the things I like about this passage is it teaches us that the entire triune Godhead is involved in our salvation. In this one little passage, we have God the Father, our Savior, who saves us through faith in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, instrumental one who brings us to repentance, washing us, regenerating us, and bringing us into the family of God. Salvation is a complete effort of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Salvation from our sin through Christ is the crimson thread that weaves together the tapestry of the biblical story. Christianity is a saving religion. Salvation is at its center, at its core. When you look at this word saved, right? He saved us. This is a word that's used often in the New Testament and Old Testament. Many times it means what we might think, you know, someone's in physical danger, Perhaps an enemy is attacking them or something, something like that. And intervention happens and their life is saved. But most often, especially in the New Testament, this word has a spiritual meaning. It's referring to a spiritual kind of danger. And so the word literally means to deliver or to rescue from transcendent danger and destruction. To deliver and rescue from transcendent danger and destruction. What is that transcendent danger and destruction? Well, negatively, it's the wrath of God. God saves us from his own wrath towards our sins. God delivers us from his judgment. He rescues us from hell, a place that Jesus refers to more than any other person in the Bible. It's Jesus who talks about hell. And for some reason, we all love the red letters of the gospel, except those red letters. Church, we must not remake God in our image. The inspiration of the scriptures mean that God loves us enough to reveal himself to us and to reveal ourselves to ourselves. And what does he show? That we are sinners and that sin negatively sends us and severs our relationship from him and sends us to an eternity separate from God's presence unless he saves us. Negatively, it speaks to being delivered and rescued from hell. Positively, it means that God 
has forgiven us of all of our sins. He's removed us from the road that leads to death, and he's put us on the road that leads to life eternal. In Colossians chapter one, the apostle Paul says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I like that word redemption. Some of you who are a little older, you may remember S&H green stamps. How many of y'all remember those? Raise your hand, okay. So we've all identified ourselves as to who is AARP qualified this morning, right? Okay. And young people, what SNH green stamps were, these were, these were before you had the, all the reward cards that you have nowadays, and I, you know, my wallet is like this thick because of you know, reward cards. Don't you hate that, you know? Um, before that, there was a company that back in the 1800s, all the way up until about 1980, they had a reward system, but it was paper little green stamps. And so you would go to a grocery store, you'd buy groceries, and that grocery person, based off of how much you would spend, they would give you all these little green, this little booklet of green stamp, and you'd lick it, and you'd put it on you know, a little cardboard, and you could get, I forget how many, I think it was like 150 points per board, and, and a book it was like 1,200, and you could take those boards when you got done, and they had stores, like in Jacksonville, where I was raised, the greatest city in the state of Florida, right? They had a redemption center, for SNH green stamps. And I remember as a six-year-old child, I had gotten SNH green stamps. I would take them from my mom's, you know, pantry pride bags and Win Dixie bag and all that. And I had, because I wanted a baseball glove, and I finally collected enough SNH green stamps and I went into the redemption center. That's what it was called. And I turned in my green stamps and I got my baseball glove that was a cheap piece of junk. But anyway. Notwithstanding that aspect of the story, the point was you got to purchase something based off of those things. And that's what Christ, God has done for us through Christ. He has purchased us from our slavery to sin. And the price of that purchase out of slavery was the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was his blood on the cross. We've been redeemed in this way. Our salvation is solely due to God's sovereign grace and mercy. Circle that word solely for a minute. That word solely is important. It leads us to an important aspect of our salvation. I'm gonna give you your 25 cent word for this morning, right? This is your word for why you put something in the offering plate. Our salvation is the monergistic work of God. Like that? Monergistic. Let me spell it for those of you who take notes. M-O-N as in Nancy, E-R-G-I-S-T-I-C, monergistic. If you're hooked on phonics, you already knew how to spell that, okay? Salvation is the monergistic work of God. What does that mean? Well, the word monergistic is made up of two words, mon or mono, meaning what? One, okay? And then urge, E-R-G. Urge is a unit of work or a unit of energy. So monergistic means one party performs and accomplishes the work. One party accomplishes the work. And this is what verse five is telling us, right? And verse five is telling us our salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. Syner it's not synergistic. It's not, verse five says, because of works done by whom? Us. 
in righteousness. Our salvation is not due to works that we do in righteousness. Synergistic salvation is a grave error in Christian thinking. It's what really afflicted that poor woman on her deathbed. And I understand this. We, we, need, to, we need to connect some dots here on this idea in this passage as it relates to our sinful condition and why our salvation is monergistic. It's solely due to God's divine sovereign grace and mercy. We need to get this, okay? Because I didn't get this for a large part of my Christian life. I wasn't taught this. I was taught a synergistic approach, but it's wrong. It's, it's wrong because we're sinners. We're dead in sin, right? We aren't sin sick. We are sin dead. And when a person is sin dead, something or someone from outside of himself has to bring him back to life. This is what the word in this passage, regeneration, is speaking to. This has to happen from outside of ourselves. We do not regenerate ourselves. Dead people do not bring themselves back to life, right? When, when Lazarus was dead in the tomb, Jesus went to the tomb, right? And he didn't say, hey, Lazarus, are you ready to get out of there? Yes, right? There's no, hey, give a brother a hand and help me out of this situation I'm in. He couldn't say anything. Why? Because, Lord, he stinketh. I love the King James Version on that one. Actually, no, it wasn't stinketh. He reeketh. That was the King James Version, right? No, Lord, he reeketh. He's dead. See, see, Jesus didn't come to Lazarus and say, Lazarus, would you like to be resurrected from the dead? Would you like to get out of those grave clothes? Would you like to get out of that tomb? He didn't ask any of those things because Lazarus answering because Lazarus was dead. And the same thing is true for us when it comes to our sin. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And this is why it has to be a monergistic outside of ourselves Somebody, something, God doing something to us that brings us into the family of God. In Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 3, a religious leader comes to him. He's intrigued by Jesus. His name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, I want in. What do I have to do to enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus turns to him and says, you must be born again. This was not the answer Nicodemus was looking for. As a good Jew and as an adherent to Judaism and part of the Pharisees, he was expecting some list of what must be done. And instead he gets, you must be born again. And he's confused and he says, but Lord, Jesus, I, I am rabbi. I'm, I'm an older man and my, my mom is, you know, I, I can't go back in the womb. And he goes, are you kidding me? You don't, you don't get this? You don't understand this? And then this is what Jesus said to him. I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. All of us, because of our sin, need to be born again. And here's where Christians get it wrong. 
And here's where Christianity, in often cases, has led people astray. I was taught growing up in churches, and it wasn't by people who were intentionally evil and diabolical, and this, this is what they had been taught, and down to, I was taught that I would be born again once I trusted and believed in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And when I trusted and believed in faith in Jesus Christ, I would then be born again. That is synergistic salvation. And it's wrong. It's a form of works salvation. Don't get me wrong, my, my pastors, my, my seminary professors, they didn't, I don't think they consciously recognized that they were teaching a form of work salvation, but they had been deceived by false teachings and doctrine through the centuries of the church. This is work salvation. Why? Why is believing in Christ like this a form of work salvation? Well, well let me ask it, put it to you like this. Riddle me this. Is believing in Jesus Christ and trusting in him in faith as your Lord and Savior, is that essentially a spiritually good thing to do, a righteous thing to do? Is that good? Yes or no? Yes. I think we can all agree to put it another way. Is it bad to not believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is that bad? Yes. Okay. So believing is spiritually good. It's righteous. It's pleasing to God, to commit our life to Jesus Christ. So riddle me this, how does somebody who is spiritually dead, who the scriptures say, there is no one who is good, no, not one, they are all unrighteous, no one seeks after God, no one seeks to do good, how can someone with that verdict on their life do something good and believe in Jesus Christ? How can that happen? It can't happen. In our natural state, it cannot happen. We cannot resurrect ourselves spiritually so that we can now believe. This is why being born again precedes believing in Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, what he told him was, you must be born again. And guess what? This can only be done through whom? The Holy Spirit. You need the washing of regeneration that comes from the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul says in this passage. Jesus has to come to us. Our heavenly father has to come to us and bring us to life spiritually. He has to make us born again and alive. And what he does, church, it's just the most amazing, miraculous thing that happens. He can take someone who has been opposed to Christ all of their life, and in a blink of an eye, that person can't wait to commit their life to Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Because God, through the Holy Spirit, gives that person a new heart. And in giving that person a new heart and brings that person to life, he gives them this overwhelming desire to repent of sin and to accept and trust Jesus Christ. He gives repentance and faith to this individual. So Jesus, he does not allow for a synergistic view of salvation where my faith, you know, there's a little bit of good in me, 
Enough so that when I heard the gospel, I then believed, and that's why I'm going to heaven, and this dude ain't. Because of me. No. If God doesn't intervene in all of our lives, all of us would die and go to hell. Every single one of us. All of us would reject Christ. All of us would love sin and not our Savior. So Jesus, Nicodemus, doesn't allow for a synergistic view of salvation. Regeneration has to precede faith. It's something that God does to dead sinners. Ephesians 2 doesn't allow for a synergistic. It is solely due to God's sovereign grace and mercy. It's monergistic. Ephesians 2, after he says that we're dead in our trespasses and sin, look at the language. Remember, the inspiration of Scripture. Let Scripture form your beliefs. Can't say that enough. It's scripture that must form your beliefs. It's not what Jerry Clem says, only what Jerry Clem says if it lines up with scripture. And so what did the scripture say? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus and Nicodemus will only allow for a monergistic view of salvation. Ephesians 2 only allows for a monergistic. It is not synergistic. Our passage this morning doesn't allow for anything other than a monergistic view of salvation, that it is God. Our salvation is due to, solely to God's sovereign grace and mercy. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit being born again, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Our sin requires a Savior, and our salvation is solely due to God's sovereign grace and mercy. Finally this morning, our salvation is experienced from three different phases or aspects. And let me just say up front, I realize that that is really awkward wording, but I couldn't come up with a better word. I racked my brain and I finally just gave up and went home, okay? But it's important for us to see this because this is cool. Verse seven says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I want you to think about your salvation for a moment this morning. And as you do, let's first of all realize that there is a, a past perspective or a past phase or past aspect. And there's a couple of phrases in this passage that, that reflect this. So for example, verse five, when he says, we are saved, past tense, right? 
according to his mercy. And in verse seven, we are justified by his grace. That word justified, we know. We, we studied it in the book of Romans exhaustively a year or so ago, right? It's that word that means to be declared righteous by God, no longer guilty of our sins. In Romans chapter three, a few moments ago, I told you about there is none righteous, but later he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All who have been born again, right, through the spirit of God and have entrusted their life by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ, everyone who that is their testimony is now saved. It's a past tense to it. It's a done deal, right? It's a done deal. For by grace are you, what? Saved through faith. That faith is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When, when the apostles were preaching to the Philippians, a jailer, in Acts chapter 16, and they asked, what must we do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. Right? There is a sense in which our salvation is in the past. And this past sense of our salvation speaks to the penalty of sin. We're no longer guilty. Our guilt, our sin has been imputed to Christ. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That great swap that took place at that moment when God gave us a new heart and draws us to Jesus Christ and we repent and we believe in him at that moment. Our sins have now been placed upon Christ and we now stand before God with Jesus's righteousness declared by God, no longer guilty, no longer an enemy, no longer at war with him, but instead we are his loved children. And that happens, boom, and it's a done deal. Nothing can ever affect that relationship. It's such a blessing to understand that there is an aspect of our salvation that is past. It is done. It's accomplished. It means that positionally we're no longer enemies, but instead we're the children of God, and nothing can snatch us out of his hand, he tells us. I love that imagery. I mean, Jesus really wants us to get this because doubt because of sin in our lives is a natural occurrence that I think most Christians struggle with at one point or another. You know, we believe and we trust in Christ and then we, we do battle with sin and we fail and we fail and we fail and we begin to wonder, am I really a Christian? Do I really know him? Have I really been saved? And, and I love that picture that Jesus gives us. He says that all that the Father has given to me will come to me and I will lose not one of them. They are all in my hands and I'm holding on to them, and no one can take them out of my hands. And then Jesus goes on even further, and he gives this imagery that you know we're in his clenched hands, and then God the Father takes his hands and wraps them around Jesus's hands so that we have like double locked security for all of eternity. Nothing is going to remove us out of the hands. And guys, that includes our sin. That includes this next aspect of salvation. You see, there's a past but there's also a present perspective and aspect 
of salvation. And our past, and the past view of salvation, that speaks to sin's penalty, but the, the present perspective on salvation speaks to sin's power over us. Our entrance into the family of God, it changed our relationship with God. We're loved children. At that moment though, our relationship to sin was also changed. And it's the power of sin that's no longer exerted over us like it was. It's no longer our master. Sin is still with us, but throughout, throughout, all throughout our daily experiences, God is presently saving us from the power of sin in our everyday lives. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that makes it so that we are actually able to say yes to grace and no to sin, Titus teaches us in chapter 2. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Present tense, ongoing, continuation and among those who are perishing. Philippians chapter two, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not all only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We don't work for our salvation, but because we are saved, now that salvation works itself out in us. And we are presently experiencing this aspect of the saving power of God, where sin no longer is our master and rules over us. So the past has to do with the penalty of sin. The present has to do with the power of sin. The future perspective has to do with the presence of sin. So that being justified by his grace, verse 7 says, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have a future church as heirs of, Jesus, of God through Jesus Christ, co-heirs with him, where one day we will be completely freed from the presence of sin. Our salvation will be made complete. On that day, when a blink of an eye, the last trumpet, when the Lord shall with a shout descend, and we will all be changed. The dead will be raised incorruptible, Death and sin will be defeated once and for all, and never again will we ever have a struggle with sin. This is our inheritance. It is a glory that awaits everyone who knows Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this morning, with this important word, if one day I outlive you, and I come to your room and you're facing eternity and I ask you that simple question. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? What would it be? If you're uncertain about that, may I encourage you that the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. There are some things that you do not put off, right? You do not put off settling this question. It is the central, most important question and theme in the scriptures and the story of redemption. Don't delay. Know the answer to that question. And if you don't, 
this is the fun part of my job. I'll meet with you. I'll come to your house. I'll meet you at a restaurant. And we'll talk about this question. And it's so better that we talk about this question now than in Holmes Regional Hospital. So if you don't know how to answer that question, I love you. You are the people of this church. You're my friends. You're the extended family. Let's sit down and talk. And let's settle any questions that you may have about this important word, okay? Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to just dig into a word that many of us might take for granted. Lord, for some of us this morning, may this be an epiphany. May it be a moment where we come to even more deeply appreciate what you've done in our lives as as we begin to realize that Everything about our salvation has been given to us from you that we didn't deserve it. We just received this grace, this mercy that you pour out upon us. And that you did this solely because you decided to set your love upon us. So Lord, may all of us who know Christ this morning, may we walk away with a deeper appreciation for your sovereign grace and mercy which you poured out upon us through your spirit. And Lord, I pray for the one, maybe, maybe somebody who's even been here for years and years and years, like that lady in the hospital bed, and yet there's still these nagging questions, and perhaps it's fear or it's pride or it could be any number of reasons why. Maybe it's just that the day is their appointed day for salvation, but Lord, would you, would you give them that courage that they need to reach out to me or to come over to the care area and speak to a Stevens minister, Stephen minister? or to find an elder or somebody that they know that they can talk to so that we can settle this most important matter in the hearts of these people who I have the privilege of pastoring. We love you, Lord, and thank you for all that you've done to purchase our salvation. In your name we pray, amen.